One of the jobs that I had when I was in college was as a director of Young Life. Now, some of you know what Young Life is. It's a parachurch organization that was organized to reach teenagers for Christ that maybe wouldn't normally go to church. And so uh, we would go into the high schools and the middle schools and hang around the kids and play sports with them and everything. And then once a week, we'd invite them to what was called club because folks outside of the church, they don't want to go to church, so we invite them to club. And so uh, we would sing songs and do skits, and then we'd do a very, very short talk to tell them about the fact that God created them, that he loved them, that he wanted to have a relationship with them. Well, the first year we went off to camp, we went to Colorado to a place called Frontier Ranch, and we had all kinds of stuff for the young people to do. Young Life does a great job at camps, and we had horseback riding, and we had rock climbing, we had swimming, we had all this. And then every night, we would gather all the teenagers that we brought with us to a roundup. Not a church service, to a roundup, all right? And we would sing songs, we would do skits, and we'd do a very short talk about how God loved them and he wanted to have a relationship with them. And we did that all week long until the very last night of camp. And at the last night of camp, we gathered everybody together and did a short introduction and then we said, we're gonna do something different today. We want you to go out and find a place to be alone and we want you to think about what you've heard this week. Think about the talks that you've heard about a God who cares about you. Think about the conversations that you've had with some of your counselors who uh, have talked to you about your life and where you're headed and just spend some time alone with God and then we're gonna come back and let you reflect on what you've thought about. And so the kids went out and they found a place under the stars or next to the tree or behind the cabin and they just, were, they were there alone with God. And then we rang a bell and everybody came back in and we had what was called a say-so. And, and, and we just invited the, the young people that were there that if God had done something new in their life, just to stand up, have the courage, the boldness, just to say so. And so one kid would get up and he'd say, you know, I grew up in church all my life, but I thought church was about rules and I thought God was mad at me because I wasn't very good at keeping the rules. And I found out that God loves me and he wants to be involved in my life and he's not trying to cramp my style, but he's trying to set me free. And I just, about 10 minutes ago, I just invited God into my life and Jesus Christ saved me. And everybody would clap and everything and then another kid would stand up and share and then another and another. And it was just a great way to end a week of camp for these kids to stand up and declare their relationship with God. Now, I didn't realize till several years later that the title of that gathering called Say So came from a scripture in the Bible, which is a scripture we're gonna look at today. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Psalm 107. If you don't, just look on the back of your handout and that scripture is listed there for your convenience. Psalm 107, verse one says, "'Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good.'" for his loving kindness is everlasting. Let the redeemed of the Lord, there it is, say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the adversary and gathered from the lands, from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south. Now those of us who are followers of Christ today, God has gathered us here. He's gathered us from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south. Some of us come from Christian homes where we grew up all of our life hearing about the love of God. It was almost second nature to us. Others of us, he's gathered us from dysfunctional homes where there was a turmoil and pain and yet God somehow broke through to your life at some point and he reminded you that you have a heavenly father that loves you and will provide security for you. It doesn't matter whether you come from a foreign country or you were born in the United States, God has gathered us 
from the hand of the adversary. And it says here, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Now, there's a lot of ways that we can declare that we have a relationship with God. But one of the primary ways and the way that is prescribed for all of us who call Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior is called baptism. And I want to just talk a little bit about the meaning of that today. Baptism is really kind of like a marriage ceremony. It's where you stand up and after you've dated around and, and, and you've found a, a guy or you found a gal and, you, and of all the people you could spend the rest of your life with, you have chosen them and they've chosen you and you're so proud of that relationship that you invite all your friends and you invite all your families and you, st- and you stand up in front of everybody and say, I want to declare my love for this person. I want to declare my commitment for this person. It, you say so. I wear a ring on my hand, and it's very rare that this ring is not on my hand because I'm proud of the fact that Marcia picked me, all right? 43 years ago, she picked me. And, and I want to say so. I want to say I have a relationship, a deep and abiding commitment. And that's what happens when we cross from just knowing about God and believing about God and having a re- unique relationship with him. By the way, that's, you do know that there are a lot of people in America who are dating God but haven't gotten married to him yet. You do realize that. They like God. They think he's cute, okay? (laughs) They even talk to him. That's called prayer, but they've never gotten married to him. What's the difference between dating somebody and being married to somebody? Nobody ever gets that wrong. It's commitment. It's when you enter into a unique relationship with that person that you don't have with anybody else. And that's what happens when we get saved, when we become Christians. We enter into a unique relationship with Jesus that we don't have with anyone else where we're trusting Christ to do two things for us. First of all, we're trusting him to forgive our past. That's why he died on the cross, so he would pay the punishment for our past, and we didn't have to pay for it. And then second of all, that we're entering into this unique relationship where we're trusting him and him alone to govern our life or be the Lord and Master of our life. It doesn't mean we're going to be perfect. We're not claiming we are. We're just saying we want God to change us and we're giving him permission because we trust him. One who died for us, we trust him to change us. Now when you move from dating God to being married to God, the Bible says you ought to have a ceremony. You ought to stand up proudly. You don't need to be a secret disciple. You need to say so. And that's called baptism. Now, there is a bit of confusion about baptism, so I hope to provide some clarity for that today. There there are people who underemphasize baptism. Some of you come from a background like that. I'll be talking to you about your relationship with God, and you'll say, oh, yeah, I I became a Christian. I invited Jesus Christ in my life to forgive me and to take control 10 years ago. And I said, well, when did you get baptized? You said, oh, I've never been baptized. Well, why weren't you baptized? Well, the church that I grew up in, they just didn't make a very big deal about it. Here's what I want you to know. At Lake Point, we make a big deal about baptism. And the reason we make a big deal about baptism is because Jesus made a big deal about baptism. That's the only reason. It really is. In Matthew, the 28th chapter, right before Jesus ascended into heaven, he was telling his disciples the most important thing that they could remember after he left that they were to be about before he came back. And here's what he said. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Right up there with make disciples, he said baptize them. Right up there with teach them to obey all things I've commanded you, he put baptism in there. Why was that? Because Jesus knew it was important for us to drive a stake in the ground 
to put a flag on the top of the hill, to have some kind of physical act that represented an invisible change that had taken place in us, a transfer there. Jesus not only commanded it, Jesus modeled it. When he began his ministry, the Bible tells us that he went from the Judean wilderness down to the Jordan River and he asked John the Baptist to baptize him. Now, Jesus didn't get baptized for the same reason we get baptized. Uh, We get baptized, we're symbolizing the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're signifying that there once was a Steve Stroop that was controlled by Steve Stroop, that old Steve Stroop's dead. And now he's a new Steve Stroop, he's come up from the grave, he's risen to walk in newness of life. He's not perfect, but he has a, a new master to his life. Well, Jesus didn't have that change, he was always God. But Jesus was baptized to inaugurate his ministry. It was a symbol, and he poured in a new meaning to his baptism. I also have a sneaking suspicion that Jesus got baptized to keep some of you who would use the fact that he wasn't baptized as an excuse not to be baptized yourself. You'd say, well, Jesus wasn't baptized, so Jesus just pulled the rug right out from under you. And he said, I'm going all the way down. Jesus commanded it. Jesus modeled it. Not only that, but the early church made a big deal about baptism. On the very first day of the very first church, Simon Peter stood up in Acts the second chapter in verse 41. He stood up and he preached the gospel and 3,000 people got saved on that very first day of the first church. And it says that those who had received his word were baptized. You move to Acts the eighth chapter as the church continues to grow and there's an Ethiopian eunuch and he accepts Christ and that day he's baptized. You move on to Acts the 10th chapter and there's a fellow by the name of Cornelius who hears the gospel. Several of the people in his family hear and accept Christ as well and they get baptized. You move to Acts the 16th chapter to the town of Philippi and there's a jailer who becomes a Christian and several people in his household become Christians and the Bible says that next day they were all baptized. Every time someone becomes a Christian in the Bible, except for one person, they were baptized. You say, who was that one person? The thief who was hanging on the cross, who didn't have an opportunity to be baptized? Only one that wasn't baptized. Everybody, it's a normative experience. See, you stand before Jesus and you say, I want you to forgive me. Not only do I want you to forgive me, I want you to be the master of my life. I will do whatever you say. And Jesus says, great, first thing I want you to do is be baptized. Go public with your decision for me. You go, whoa, wait a minute, I don't want to get my hair wet in front of a bunch of people. See, there's a sense in which it's really a litmus test on whether or not you're really following him. If you can't do the very first thing, the simple thing that he asks you to do, will you do anything else that he asks you to do? Now, here's what I know. In a crowd this size, and those of you who are watching us online and folks at our other campuses, there's some of you here today, and you were saved last week, you became a Christian a year ago, you became a follower of Christ 10 years ago, and you have yet to be baptized. The the take-home, the application of this message is walk straight out of here today, go to the Connection Center at all of our campuses and say, I want to say so. And let us sign you up to go public with your faith. It's normative for every Christian. It's the first thing that he asks us to do. Some people underemphasize baptism. There are other folks, though, on the other hand, that overemphasize baptism. You say, Steve, based on everything you say, how in the world could anybody under, I mean, uh, overemphasize baptism? We overemphasize baptism 
when we view it as a sacrament rather than a symbol. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, baptism is a symbol, just like the ring on my hand is a symbol. Uh, the fact that I, I can take this ring off today, I'm not unmarried at this moment. Married? Unmarried. It's a symbol. That's all it is, is a symbol. And, and God has given us two symbols to point to what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. One symbol is communion. And from time to time, we will take and we'll pass communion. And, and communion is where we take a, a piece of bread, which is a symbol of the fact that Jesus had his body broken for us. And then we take the cup and we drink the cup. And the cup is a symbol. That's all it is, is a symbol of the fact that he poured out his blood for us. The bread is not actually the body of Jesus. The cup is not actually the blood of Jesus. And when we eat the bread and we drink the cup, we're not eating the body of Jesus or drinking the blood of Jesus. And nowhere in the Bible does it say that if we eat the bread and we drink the cup, that it makes us saved or that it keeps us saved. It's a symbol. When Jesus met with the disciples in the upper room before he gave his body and his blood, he says, as often as you take a piece of bread, remember what I did for you. It's about remembering. He took the cup and he says, as often as you take this cup, remember what I did for you. He didn't say anything about it doing it for us. There is one sacrament. It is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Communion is a symbol. And then the second symbol that he gives us is he gives us the symbol of baptism. The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus the death and, uh, of the old self and the risen to walk and newness of life of the new self, they are symbols. And we overemphasize baptism when we somehow make the ritual a replacement for the relationship. Now, the folks who would overemphasize baptism, the scripture that they would use would be Acts, the second chapter, verse 38. On that day of Pentecost, when Simon Peter is preaching to all the Jews that are gathered there in Jerusalem, they ask the question, Peter, what do we do to be saved? And here's what he said to them. Peter said to them, repent, and each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Somebody would say, oh, look there, it says you have to be baptized to be saved. Guys, if this was the only scripture in the whole Bible about salvation, you could come to that conclusion. If this was the only scripture about baptism in the entire Bible, you could come to that conclusion. But the truth is that this verse could be uh, interpreted in, in several ways, and we want to interpret it in context by the rest of the Scripture. First of all, understand who Peter was talking to. Peter was talking to Jews. And these Jews understood something called prophetic action. Have you ever heard of sackcloth and ashes? Sure you have. When, when a Jewish person was mourning, they would put on sackcloth, which would be the, the poorest poor, uh, form of clothing that you can. And they would literally take ashes out of the fire pit and they would put it on their head. And so they would cover themselves with sackcloth and ashes. And when someone saw them taking that action, they knew that there was mourning that was going on. If someone was to blaspheme the name of God, a Jewish person would take and rip his clothes and that was a prophetic action that talked about how disturbed he was about what had happened. If you wanted to become a Jew, you were not, not a Jew, but you wanted to become a Jew, you first of all had to be sponsored by a group of Jews, and then you had to go into the river and you had to be baptized to show that you were unclean to be a Jew, that you had to somehow be clean. You had to be sponsored. It was an act of humility. 
And so when these Jews who thought they were right with God just because they were Jews asked, what must we do to be saved? He said, you've got to be baptized just like all the other people you're telling to be baptized. In other words, you've got to take a physical action that expresses humility and your need for God to meet that need. Uh, there was a man in the Old Testament who had a disease and he wanted to be cured of the disease. And the prophet of God said, go dip yourself seven times in a muddy river and you'll be healed. Did the dipping in the water take away his disease? No, it was the humility of the man to do what God's prophet said that created it. It was the prophetic action that was an act of faith. It was a vehicle by which the person expressed their faith. Now we know that because in Acts the 16th chapter, when the Philippian jailer asked that same question, what must I do to be saved? Paul said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Didn't say anything about baptism. Now, later on the next day, he was baptized to be his say-so, to tell everybody he had become a Christian, but it wasn't baptism that caused him to be saved. In Romans, the 10th chapter, you know, we have a lot of scripture that we, we see as a narrative, but Romans was written as a theological presentation on salvation, on how a person could be saved. And in Romans, the 10th chapter, when we look at the formula for salvation, here's what it says. That if you'll confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Verse 10 says, for with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Not a word here about baptism. So when we have a theological statement about what constitutes belief, it's to confess that Jesus is the boss of your life. Let him take control. Believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. In other words, when Jesus was resurrected from the dead, it was proof that what Jesus said he did on the cross, which was to pay for our sins, was really what he did. And when Jesus, Jesus was resurrected from the grave, it was God's stamp of approval on his life that he was who he said he was. And so to be saved, you have to Accept him as your savior, let him clean you. And accept him as your Lord, let him control you. That's simply it. Now, here's an interesting scripture in Matthew, the 19th chapter. A rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, how can I have eternal life? And Jesus looks at him and he perceives that he's been worshiping material possessions and that his God is the money that he has. And so he says to this rich young ruler, he says, go sell all that you have and give it to the poor and then come follow me and you'll have eternal life. It's interesting to me that no denomination has jumped up around that particular verse. Oh, what do you think, what, you're, what does your church believe you have to do to be saved? Get rid of everything? Not a real popular religion. But that's exactly what this particular man needed to hear. Let go of your other God. The Jews needed to hear, be humble, and stop telling everybody else they need to join your club and you need to join God's club, be baptized. And then very, very interesting scripture that kind of puts it all in context is in Acts, the 10th chapter, in verse 44, that they were having a debate about the Jews were, or the Christian Jews were, about whether or not non-Jews, us, Gentiles, could get saved. And so they were, you know, Simon Peter was preaching to a group of non-Jews and they believed in their heart and they were saved. And as a result, the Holy Spirit came upon them. Now, when the Holy Spirit comes into your life, he brings different gifts. Sometimes he brings the gift of teaching, sometimes administration, sometimes the gift of faith, whatever. But this particular time, God wanted to show the Jews that non-Jews could get saved. 
And so the gift that they received was speaking in tongues, which was very evident. It was the ability to speak a language that you'd never learned. And, and so Simon Peter, listen to what it says there. Simon Peter, seeing that they had believed and that the Holy Spirit had fell upon them, and then they had a visible gift of the Spirit to prove that they had received the Spirit in verse 47, he says, surely no one can refuse water for these to be baptized who have received, past tense, the Holy Spirit, just as we did, did he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and then they asked him to stay on it for a few days. In other words, he baptized them because they'd already been saved. So baptism can't be a prerequisite for salvation. I will say this, there are times I believe by the very act of being obedient to be baptized, that is the act of faith. That is the vehicle of faith. And there are people who perhaps are, are saved as they are actually being baptized. But it's not normative and it's not a prerequisite. You weren't even aware of it, but a couple of weeks ago there were some people who were baptized here at our church. And when they were baptized, they were disowned by their families. Their families told them, if you get baptized at Lake Point, it will be as if you never existed. You will be dead to us. And they chose to be baptized. They chose to put their faith in what only Jesus could provide for them. They entered into a unique relationship with Jesus that they didn't have any with anyone else where they were trusting what Jesus did on the cross to get them to heaven and they were trusting him to be the Lord and the master of their life and they were not ashamed of it. And even though it cost them everything, they were baptized. Sometimes we underemphasize baptism. Sometimes we were tempted to overemphasize baptism and make the symbol that points to Jesus more important than Jesus. But then finally, sometimes we misplace baptism. Sometimes we put baptism in the wrong place. See, some of you come out of a tradition where you were baptized as a baby. And you were baptized as a baby because that's the tradition of the church you grew up in. You were sprinkled when you were a little kid and you can't remember it because you were too small. It was very meaningful to your parents though because they were basically saying, we love our children so much that we want them to know about the love of God and we want to protect them until they can make their own decision. And some of you even baptize your own children because your parents baptized you. Here's what you need to know though, as sentimental as that is and as how loving and warm the intent of that is, it's not biblical. There's nowhere in the Bible, not one single time in the entire Bible that you will find a baby baptized. Because baptism was given to us after we're saved to tell other people what we have chosen to do. And you cannot choose that for your children. You say, Steve, if it's not in the Bible, why did the church I grew up in, why did they baptize babies? Well, I'm glad you asked. The reason they did is toward the latter part of the second century, almost 200 years after Christ ascended into heaven, somebody said, I wonder what would happen to babies if they died before they were old enough to make their own decision for Jesus. Somebody else said, well, I don't know, but let's change, first time in 200 years, let's change baptism from after you're safe to before you're safe to keep the kids safe. Now, I've got a couple problems with that. One is it presupposes that man for, uh, this took care of something God forgot to cover, okay? I've got a little problem with that one, all right? The other problem I have is that that means that all the babies that died before they started sprinkling babies, that God sent all those babies to hell, and I have a little problem with that one as well. Third thing is it misrepresents what salvation is about. If, if baptism is keeping a child safe until they can make that decision, then baptism is what saves us. 
And I can't tell you the number of individuals I've talked to about their own personal relationships with God, and they've hearkened back and said, I, I don't really remember when it happened, but my parents told me I was baptized in the so-and-so church, so I guess I'm okay. No, you're not. Nobody else can make this decision for you. So it's giving people a false sense of security when they don't have a relationship with Christ. The other problem with it is I think you ought to remember your own say-so. I really do. It'd be like if you met a girl or you met a guy and you came into your mom and dad and said, hey man, I've got good news, I found her. I got good news, somebody finally picked me. And then you got real excited and said, I wanna plan my wedding ceremony. And what would you say if your parents say, oh, you don't need to worry about that. Because when you were a little bitty baby, we knew one day you'd snag somebody, so we went ahead and had your wedding ceremony. <laughs> you would say, I'd like to be there for my own ceremony. Oh, you were, and they'd pull out the pictures, and here you are in a tuxedo, six-month-old tuxedo. <laughs> he said, no, 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 Mom. I know I was there, but I'd like to remember my own wedding. That's kind of reasonable, isn't it? You know what I think? I think you want to remember your own baptism, don't you? If you fall in love with Jesus because you realize what he's done for you and how much he loves you and what he's willing to forgive you from, you want to be able to remember your own baptism or you to say to everybody, hey, everybody, I'm a Christian and I'm not ashamed of it. I'm no longer going to be a secret disciple. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Biblical baptism, according to the scripture, has four components to it. First of all, it is the right person, a believer. You could take this ring that's on my hand and you could go take it and put it on a three-year-old's hand. It does not make them married. It makes them confused, all right? <laughs> and you can take and baptize a little three-year-old, but it's not gonna make them saved. It's gonna confuse them. So first of all, it's the right person, a person who's had an encounter with God and they've surrendered their heart and their life to Christ. Second of all, it's the right time after salvation, not before. Third, it's the right reason to point to Jesus, not to depend upon the salvation or the church that baptizes you or anything else to save you, not even the baptism to save you. It's to point to Jesus and then the right method. And the right method, according to the Bible, is immersion. The Greek word is the word baptizo. Baptizo. It literally means to immerse. When it was translated into English, somebody transliterated it instead of translating it. And they made up a brand new word that didn't exist before 1611 when it was translated this way. And they made up the word baptize. The word means go under is what it means. Because it's a symbol. What is the symbol of? The death, the burial, and then the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is what I'm depending upon to save me. I died to self and that old self was buried with Christ and I'm risen to walk in newness of life. If the symbol is not clear, then why do we have a symbol? Now, the truth is, is that baptism is the very first time that God wants you to stand up proudly and say so. I'm a follower of Jesus, and I'm proud of it. I'm gonna say so. But friends, you know this. It's not the last time we're to say so. But we get timid, don't we? I remember several years ago, Marsh and I went on a cruise. It was a shorter cruise. And I, I don't know if you've ever been on a cruise, but they have this kind of the crazy habit of sitting you at a table with total strangers. <laughs> And I was weary. I was in a time of weariness here at the church. I just want to get away for three days. All we could afford was a three-day cruise. And, and I did not really want to be working on the cruise, all right? But we got seated with six other people. And, and some of the most dysfunctional people I've ever <laughs> eaten with in my life. 
But I, I, was, I was very careful to keep it quiet what I did because it just kind of changed everything once they heard you were a minister. And so I thought, I'm just gonna keep it quiet. And so, you know, it, it'd start heading that way and, and somebody would say, and what do you do for a living? And I would change the subject and, you know, I, I would keep it away from that. And uh, there's a lot of things that I kept changing the subject. Guy, one guy at the table kept talking about a tattoo that his wife had on her rear. And I just, whoa, look, a bird, you know. That's, whatever we could do to change the subject. And so then we're like a day into this. Well, day into it, so much has been said around the table. Now we're really in trouble if it comes out. So I'm working hard. And so after the meal, the gals get up and walk away. And I'm just kind of standing there talking to guys. And one of the guys just said a real crude thing. He didn't take the Lord's name in vain or anything, but just said something really crude. And then he turned to me and he said, oh, excuse me. And I was, you know, I'm like, hey, that's fine. I appreciate you not saying it in front of my wife. And I'm a big boy, you know, and he goes, you're one of those Christian guys, aren't you? And I thought, rats, I've been found out. <laughs> Why is it that we're the one, to, I'm, I'm the, I was the only one at the table that didn't need to be embarrassed. You know what I'm saying? Why is it that we're so hesitant to talk about something that means so much to us? Why are we so hesitant to tell people that we were royally messing up our life and that God loved us so much that he pursued us and that he wooed us, and that he didn't hold anything against us and he forgave us completely and that every single day we get to wake up and he lets us start all over again. He accepts us just like we are but he loves us so much he won't let us stay the way we are. Why wouldn't we be proud of that? Let the redeemed of the Lord Say so, not in a haughty way, not I'm better than you are kind of way, but with reverence and gentleness to talk about the one that has loved you and changed you. Let's thank him for that. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for loving us when we were unlovely. Thank you for accepting us, for giving us, for redeeming us. Help us, dear Father, to in a humble and gentle and a reverent way to proudly declare that we belong to you and that we're followers of you. And Father, I know there are a lot of people out there who give Christianity a bad name, who are hypocrites and other people who lord it over other folks. But uh, Father, I pray we would not react against that excess, but we'd just be real, we'd be authentic, we'd be transparent about our relationship with you. And that if there's anybody here today that needs to begin that journey of saying so by being baptized, that they would have the courage to sign up today. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen.